Revelation chapter number three is where we are at. Before we read this text, we're going to read the first six verses, but I wanted to tell you a story. So I hope that you won't fire me for preaching heresy this morning, but some of you may want to. I know that you don't hear that often from a pastor, but I just want to be open and honest. I have a belief and a strong belief, and my wife shares this belief with me, and some of you would find this to be insidious, but here it is. We believe that once November the 1st hits, you can decorate for Christmas. I don't, I don't know if any of the rest of you share this with me, but once December the 1st hits, let the hot cocoa flow, uh, put up the Christmas tree, turn Bing Crosby on, and let it happen. How many of you are November 1st have out at people? My, that's my tribe. That's my people. How many of you think that is the craziest nonsense you've ever heard, and after Thanksgiving is the only way to go? You can't touch it until, okay, you're actually the majority. Well... Um, we can agree to disagree, but here's, here's what we do at our house. We always decorate early. Our Christmas tree is already up, and I love it right now. Uh, one year out of the 13 Christmases my wife and I have spent together, one year we decided we were going to do a live Christmas tree. I grew up with a live Christmas tree. It's what we always did. And I wanted the nostalgia. I wanted the memory. You know, we're going to make this a family tradition. So we decided that we were going to pick a date. We were going to do it. Of course, we do it early. I'm not doing it after Thanksgiving, and we're normally traveling to see family for Thanksgiving. So we circled the day on the calendar. This is going to be a family event. We're going to get off work a little early. We're going to go to the tree farm. We're going to get our tree, haul it home, put it up. It's going to be fantastic. But that particular day that we had selected, this is four or five years ago, it was one of those just miserable Pittsburgh days. It was gray. It wasn't just rainy. It was like, is it rain? Is it ice? Is it snow? It was all mixed together, and it was just sleet all day long, and there was not a chance we were going to a Christmas tree farm on this day. So we decided we would just go to a store that had live trees and get them. The only problem is it's like December or November the 4th or something, you know. People haven't even started to stock these up yet. But I found, I finally found the Home Depot in Gibsonia had just got a shipment of their live Christmas trees for the season in their garden center. So we jumped in the van, we drove out to Gibsonia, we got there. It's still icy, and of course it's in the garden center, it's outside, it's not inside. So these trees that are bundled up are like popsicles, basically. And we're just trying to get one as fast as we can at this point. We throw it on a cart. We get it checked out. It's freezing cold. I did not think through putting it on the roof of our minivan. So I'm buying twine and trying to get this. So we get it all done. And now we're headed home. And I'm not exaggerating when I say it started dumping snow. We're on the Red Belt from Gibsonia to Natrona Heights. And it opened up like it was squall territory, you know, it was happening and it's just snowing and snowing. So we slowly trudge our way home. We get home and I unload this popsicle of an ice or of a, of a Christmas tree that's covered in snow in the garage. And we want to put it up tonight. Like I don't want to leave it in the garage to thaw for four days. So it's on the floor and now I'm beating it with brooms and with two by fours to get all the ice and all the snow off of it. And it's still not great, but we haul it in the house and it's dripping everywhere and we cut the net off of this tree and out plops these ugliest, fattest little beer belly of a tree you've ever seen in your life. And if you think I'm joking, I have a picture to prove it to you. This is from four or five years ago. This is our Christmas tree. Now, mind you, this is after I took a sawzall to this thing and trimmed it, okay? This is the post-haircut tree, and it's been like a whole day production at this point. But we get it up, 
we get some ornaments on it, and there it is, our live Christmas tree in the living room. So things are going well. We leave for Thanksgiving, and it's in its little, I don't know what they are, the, the tree bassinet or whatever they are that you put the water in and to try to keep it alive. We leave for Thanksgiving for four or five days. We come back for Thanksgiving. It's not even December 1st yet. We get back, and it's very apparent that this tree is dying fast. And we don't stand a chance to make it to Christmas. Like, I don't know. Obviously, Home Depot got them early, and we got it early. But apparently, they had cut them down from Canada four weeks prior to that or something. Because this thing was just, it was on its last leg. And it was browning fast. So we tried what we could. I mean, you give it water, you pray, lay your hands on it with some oil or something. I mean, you do what you can. But it just wasn't working. And by, by the first week of December, the thing was brown. And we took all the decorations off. I hauled it out in the woods, threw it in the woods. We got an artificial tree and put it up, and we haven't done a live one since. That's, that's been what we did. Now, the reason I mention this story to you is because we wanted a live Christmas tree. But really, the Christmas tree was dead, right? The day that they cut it down and disconnected it from the root system, that tree was beginning to die. And you come to this church in Revelation 3, this church of Sardis, and they basically are the live Christmas tree that's been cut down. They're alive, but they're dead. And Jesus makes no bones about it. He tells them as much, and he gives them some things they need to know and some things they need to wake up from. And I want you to see it here in Revelation chapter 3, this Christmas tree of a church. So here we go. Verse 1. Unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. That's a reference back to chapter 1, which was a reference to Jesus. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. I will blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Now, here is the headline for this church. There's a lot of particulars I could look at, but here's the headline. This is a church that is spiritually asleep. And it's very dangerous, the game that they're playing. And Jesus mixes his metaphors a little bit. He starts out with, you have a name that you're living, but you're dead. All right, that's clear, they're dead. But then he goes on to say in verse number two, well, there's still some signs of life. There are some things that remain, and they're about to die, but we need a resurrection here, and we need to pay some attention here, and we need to be sure that we can actually get out of the ICU, as it were, and start to see some health reinvigorated inside of this church. And the headline here is, that, are they dead or are they still alive and almost dead? Fire without air. On the outside, you look fine, but the internal reality of what needs to be there is not there, and you are leaking spiritually, and this is a problem. And we know that the headline is spiritual sleep because he, he alludes back to the history of this town. And the headline for Sardis historically was that they were asleep. And he actually mentions this twice in the letter. And if you don't know the history of Sardis, you would read right past it. He tells them with this big punch in verse number two that you need to watch. Then he tells them in verse number three, if you don't watch... I'm going to come to you as a thief in the night, and this is not going to be pretty. And this idea of watchfulness was something that Sardis had historically struggled with. Now, you didn't come to church for a history lesson today, but I'm going to give you a brief one so that you can understand the text. Sardis was this 
amazing rich city if you went back to like 600 BC-ish. It was such a stronghold. It's built really, the, uh, the back of the city is this mountain. And Sardis is built almost in layers. You may have seen in, in South America, there are a lot of uh, ancient civilizations that did this where they like tiered uh, their, their, they have plateaus or layers to the city. And Sardis was that way, but the tiers were almost all pizza shaped. They were kind of like Point Park in Pittsburgh. They all came to a point, and on the sides, it was very steep, and at the back, you had the mountain, so the only way up was at really the single point, and you had to go up, and then up, and then up, and then up at this single point, and it was very easy to defend. They said that even the children of Sardis could defend it from the strongest army, because it was just such a natural fortress, and they enjoyed the comfort of this place for a long time. Until they attacked Cyrus, the king of the Persians, who was not well known at that time, although Cyrus went on to become very great and a world ruler. But at the time, they attacked them, and they, they did not succeed, and they fell back. And Cyrus, sleeping because they think that they are very secure, and as they sleep, their demise befalls them, and they're conquered as a city. This actually happened again. They go on, and, and Cyrus comes on the scene, and he comes off the scene, and the city falls back into the, into the Lydian hands. And if you go forward another 350 years, Antiochus the Great does the exact same thing. He hires a mountain climber to lead his army in the night up the back of this place, and no one is watching, and everyone is asleep, and the city falls again. And when Jesus comes to them and says, hey, you're alive, but you're dead. There's some signs of life, but we need to strengthen this. Watch, watch. If you won't watch, this would be something that the, the Sardinians would know, and it would grab their attention, and it would refer them back to the context of what their city was known for, that they had ceased to watch. And because they ceased to watch, they were overtaken. And the point, the headline, is wake up spiritually because you're about to be overtaken. You are about to die. Now, don't be misled by the word perfect. This happens a lot in the New Testament. The perfect, more often than not, means mature or complete. This is why you would read in Hebrews that Jesus, the captain of our salvation, suffered, and that suffering made him perfect. It doesn't mean it made Jesus sinless. It means it made him mature and complete. And the idea it's trying to communicate is that your works are not complete or your works are incomplete. Now, what does that mean, okay? Spiritual sleep would mean that my works are incomplete. What does it mean if my works are incomplete? Well, we don't know according to the text. We have to look elsewhere in the Bible to get word. God does not look on that in a pretty way and say, well, I'll take what I can get. Uh-uh. Pride matters, and that would be an incomplete work. It would indicate that there is a spiritual slumber happening in your life. You see this actually very in a profound way. In the book of Daniel, if you remember back to the book of Daniel, Daniel served several different kings, two of which were Babylonian kings, and it was a father and son combo, Nebuchadnezzar and Belteshazzar. Ecclesiastes tells us that what we do, we should do with all our might. When we serve the Lord, it should be with everything that we have. It shouldn't be this lollygag. It shouldn't be a jog. It shouldn't be a, I'm just, you know, I'm giving it some effort, but not a lot of effort. That shouldn't be the case. If, how many teachers in the room? Any teachers, you have your degree in teaching, okay? What happens when a student turns in homework that is half done? 
or it's fully incomplete and they don't get a good grade. But sometimes we think that we can give God our half-baked efforts. And you know what? I'll give you some of this, but, but not all of this. And I'll just do it partially. I'll do it, but I won't really do it with, with my heart. And that's not what he's looking for. The idea that I will do this part way, but not all the way, I'm going to hold back is not good. And we try to instill this in our kids, don't we? Take out the trash does not mean I took the trash bag and I tied it and I left it in the trash can. It means you took it out of the trash can and you put it in the big trash can in the garage. And then it means on trash day, you took the big trash can down to the street so they could pick it up, right? That's what taking the trash out means. You try to teach your kids this. Hey, I told you to clean your room. I did. That's not what my eyes are telling me. I can see all these toys everywhere. You halfway cleaned your room. We didn't clean the room, right? There's this idea, biblically, that you don't obey halfway, the old Ananias and Sapphira syndrome. Remember that, Acts 5? Well, they sell all the land that God apparently tells them to do, but they give part of it, and they say, we've given all of it. We're obeying fully, it's what they say, but they are obeying fully, and what happened to them? I would dare say God came like a thief in the night, and that was really, that was really detrimental to them. God's not interested in partial obedience. So you get the point? There's something happening here in the church at Sarvis where their works are incomplete. And I'm not sure if it's the pride. I'm not sure if they're half-hearted. I'm not sure if they're just obeying partially. I'm not entirely sure. But there's something here where their works are not complete. They're not where they need to be. And you need to know that these things can combat each other and these things you have to be on guard for. You have to be on guard for the pride and and showing off spiritually just for your own agenda. You also have to be on guard for being half-hearted. This shows up in worship sometimes. That sometimes people are half-hearted and they stand there like wooden Indians and their heart's not really in it. Sometimes my heart is in it, but is your heart really in it? And it could be driven by pride and, and more showmanship. All of those things, you have to be on danger on either side of the equation. And you have to be able to say, I want to serve the Lord as I'm supposed to. Now, this is something that is a problem for every single Christian. This is part of what happens when we sleep. And I love how Tim Keller has a sermon called On Reality, where he talks about this. I think it's so fitting. What happens when you sleep? Well, there's a lot of things that happen while we sleep. We could, we could answer that, you know, my brain charters and I rejuvenate and this and that. But really what happens when you sleep is things that are unreal start to become very real. And things that are real start to become unreal. But you're in Never Never Land dreaming about something. You know, you're over there in Candyland, and Mrs. Peanut Brittle is introducing you to King Candy, and the house is burning on fire, right? You can tell I have a three-year-old. <laughs> the house is ablaze, but you don't know it because you're sleeping, and what is real is not gripping you like it should. So the alarm starts to scream in your ears and try to get you to wake up out of your sleep. But is it possible for you to sleep on that spiritually and lose reality, the wonderful mercy of God? Absolutely it is. We sing, I want you more than gold or silver and only you can satisfy. Now that's real. According to the Bible, that's reality. The truth that a Christian knows is that there's a sovereign God who's control of everything, who hasn't taken his hands off the steering wheel and nothing has slipped by him. He's not a goalie who let one get by. However, oftentimes, we start to be very anxious and act as though we have to control everything. 
and we have to be in charge of everything going on. And that does produce anxiety in us when we, when we start to think that we are the big chief. That, you get it? Now, I can apply this in a million ways. But what's happening in those moments? The reality of the gospel is becoming less real to you. You're sleeping on the gospel. And part of what Jesus is trying to do to this church is to wake up and get back to that and don't sleep on this. And that we don't just want to worship one Sunday a year or once every six months, but that needs to be a regular, ongoing, recurring part of our existence because it's good for us to go back to the truths of those songs. It's good for us to hear those melodies and those lyrics. It's good for us to be reminded of the mercy and how good Jesus is. Why? Because we need that reality to be pounded home over and over and over again. 